got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Philippians 4, where Greg just read from. Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to read the same text that Greg just read, verses 10 to 23. Of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Please hear this public reading of God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift... But I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious word that we have in a language that we understand. What a privilege it is to have Bibles in languages that we understand. Uh, It is just an amazing privilege to hold your word in our hands, and uh, thank you for this wonderful short letter of Philippians that Paul wrote to this wonderful Philippian church. Uh, Thank you for the last few months that we've had to go through this rich letter. And as we come to the end of this letter today, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the Philippians' generosity to the Apostle Paul. And I pray that you would help us to learn things from the Philippians and from their generosity. And I pray that we would leave here today being a little bit more like the Philippians, that we would be just a little bit more generous and cheerful in our giving. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. So six weeks ago, I preached on Philippians 4, 10 to 13, and in that sermon, I talked about learning the secret of Christian contentment or the rare jewel of Christian contentment. And what I tried to do in that sermon was I tried to lift up Christian contentment before us, and I tried to show it as beautiful and compelling and attractive and as something that we should value and pursue. It is far more valuable than the rarest diamond in the world. And uh, I was listening sort of providentially to a little clip from Ligonier Ministries this week with a guy named Stephen Nichols, and in that clip, they asked Stephen Nichols what Puritan authors he recommends, and he said he recommends Jeremiah Burroughs, and he recommends that little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and then he said this, If there is something we need in the 21st century, it is contentment. We have more stuff than we have ever had 
before. We have more stuff than kings have had in previous centuries, and yet we still complain. He says, I still complain. So we desperately need to learn the secret of Christian contentment. And I would say amen to that, Stephen. We need to learn Christian contentment. I would just add to that, not only do we need to learn it, but we can learn the secret of Christian contentment through Christ who strengthens us. That's how we can do it. We can actually make progress in this area, and we can actually arrive and learn the secret of contentment through Christ who strengthens us. And I hope we're making progress here. I hope we're pursuing this. But I want to start with a brief bonus point about contentment. I don't want to let us off the hook on contentment just yet. So one quick bonus point on this, which I will phrase it in a question, how do we remain content when we are abounding? How do we remain content when we are abounding? People may think, oh, well, that's easy to be content when we are abounding. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily because when life is comfortable, we are tempted to forget the grace of God. We're tempted to rely on ourselves when everything is going well in our lives. So how do we remain content when we are abounding? One pastor said, we should freely admit to God that we do not deserve this abundance. Realize that it is all of grace. Give thanks for this abundance as utterly undeserved. Enjoy this abundance as a gift from God. Taste of God's goodness with contentment that receives this gift joyfully. I I love that from this pastor. Give thanks to God for this abundance as utterly undeserved. Taste of God's goodness in this abundance. And I'll tell you a quick story to try to help you remember this bonus point. It comes from, from our son who's 19 and a half months old, Michael, and uh, he loves to eat. And this week, he got his very first Happy Meal. And you may be thinking, wow, that's a little early to give him a Happy Meal. Well, he would disagree with you. He would think, why have you been holding out all this time on a Happy Meal? And the big item for him at least, and this Happy Meal was a hamburger. So he got a hamburger, he got some uh, apple slices, he got a small little french fry deal, and he got some milk thrown in there. But after we prayed, we unwrapped this hamburger, we put it on his plate, had a little broccoli on his plate too, got to have some vegetables thrown in there, and we put the whole plate in front of him just to see what he would do. And I wish you would have seen his face. He responded with joy and wonder. He had this huge smile on his face, And he looked down, he looked back at us, he looked down again and back up as if to say, are you kidding? You're giving me a whole hamburger to eat and to enjoy? And then Liliana showed him how how do you got to eat the hamburger? You use two hands and you pick it up and you bite it. And he was just all into this hamburger. He was just going to town, smiling, enjoying this hamburger. And no joke, he finished the entire hamburger, ate all of his broccoli and even had some french fries, french fry, french fry thrown in there, dipping it as well, but he loved the, the hamburger. And here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. I think this is a good picture. Now, of course, Michael is not thankful to God just yet for the hamburger. Hopefully one day he will be, but I, I think it's a good picture of how we respond to an abundance. We receive it joyfully. We give thanks to God for it. We taste of God's goodness in this abundance as utterly undeserved. This will help us learn contentment when we are abounding. If you remember, From six weeks ago, I said the discontented person quickly overflows into complaining and irritability and unkindness and impatience, but the contented person will overflow into joy and peace and thanksgiving will flow from the contented person. So let's keep pursuing Christian contentment. Okay, before we get into our text for today, I have to give this sort of as a warning. We're going to talk about sacrificial generous, cheerful giving. We're going to talk about money today. And I know when the sermon is about money, people get nervous. 
when that's the topic. And they get nervous for good reason because there's all these health, wealth, and prosperity preachers out there. But I simply want to look at our text and see what we can learn from the Philippians' generosity. And I think there is a lot for us to learn from their generosity. But before we jump in, I have to remind us all that the foundation of sacrificial, generous, cheerful giving is the grace of God. That is absolutely, utterly foundational. When we think about giving, the foundation is the grace of God. And I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That is the foundation of our sacrificial, generous giving, is the grace of God. So I'll just unpack this verse briefly. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he's the Son of God, he was infinitely rich, rich beyond all imagination, and yet he became poor. Think about Jesus' birth, and you think about the humility of Jesus to be born, to take on human flesh. Think about the Christmas story, and Mary and Joseph, and Mary is pregnant with Jesus, about to give birth there at that inn in Bethlehem, and there is no room in the inn for them, and Mary is about to give birth, and they're thinking, you've got to have a room. Joseph has got to be thinking, you've got to have a room. My wife is nine months pregnant, or however much, she's about to give birth to a son. Well, we have the manger in the back, the, the stable is the best that they could do. And here is the Son of God being born in a stable with ritual and physical uncleanness. It must have smelled horrible in that stable. And here is the Son of God being born. What unfathomable depths of humility for Jesus to be born. And you remember Jesus in his earthly ministry at one point in Luke's gospel, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So at least at one point in Jesus' ministry, he, had, he was homeless. He had nowhere to lay his head. He's becoming poor. But then you think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. You think of Jesus before Pilate. You think of Jesus being mocked and spit upon. You think of Jesus being stripped of his clothes and flogged and beaten. You think of Jesus carrying a cross and can't even carry it because he's lost so much blood. You think of the soldiers dividing his garments and casting lots for his tunic and you see Jesus stripped of his clothes being crucified on the cross. And I remember Mark preaching on 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He said, here at the cross, Jesus became truly, utterly poverty-stricken for us, where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a gospel we have to proclaim. And it is in this gospel, that is the foundation, the grace of God in Christ. That is the foundation of our cheerful giving. We must remember that when we're thinking about giving. With that said, let me give you my three points for today are these. Point number one is going to be Paul's perspective of the Philippians' generosity. We'll spend most of our time there. Paul's perspective of the Philippians' generosity. Number two, we'll look at God's perspective of the Philippians' generosity. Number three, we'll look at an incredible promise of God's provision. So let's look at Paul's perspective. Number one, how does he respond to their generosity? We'll go back to verse 10 to see how he responds to their generosity. Verse 10 of chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So how does Paul respond to their generosity? First off, he responds by rejoicing. He rejoices in the Lord greatly at their generosity. And we're going to come back to that joy in just a moment. But that's the first thing we see is he rejoices. And then in verses 11 to 13, he sort of realizes he can use this as a teaching tool. He talks about contentment. 
Not that he's speaking of being in need. He's learned contentment. And then in verse 14, he's picking back up where he started in verse 10. So verse 14 and 15, we'll read these. Well, I'll just read verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So he rejoices at their generosity. Number two, he views their generosity in verse 14 as a kindness shown to him. Number three, he views it as them sharing in his trouble. Then we'll read verses 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So the next thing that we see about Paul's perspective is in verse 15, the middle of verse 15. He says, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Only by sending a financial gift, the Philippians were close partners with Paul in the gospel. If you look back at chapter 1 briefly, chapter 1, verse 3, we'll see Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the apostle Paul gave them the gospel. And then he gave them teaching and he gave them encouragement. And then the Philippians responded to the Apostle Paul by giving to him, by supporting him financially, by supporting his ministry and the spread of the gospel through Paul. And when they gave like that, they were entering into a gospel partnership with the Apostle Paul. So two application points from this would be, number one, giving to mission and ministry is evidence of participation in the fellowship of the gospel. Secondly, would be this, if we are attending a local church regularly and we receive the gospel from that church and we receive encouragement and teaching from that church, but if we do not respond by giving and supporting that church financially, then we are not entering into gospel partnership with that local church. So next we come to verse 17, which is a wonderful verse. We're going to take it slowly. Let me read the whole thing. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. We're going to take this in three parts. The, the beginning of the verse first, he says, not that I seek the gift. Not that I seek the gift. Why does Paul say this? Not that I seek the gift. Well, Paul has just been celebrating the Philippians' generosity in the pre- preceding verses that we just went through. He's been celebrating their generosity, and he doesn't want to be misunderstood. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. It's as if Paul is saying, look, my celebration of your generosity to me doesn't mean that I am seeking money for you, from you. That's not what it means. Yes, I celebrated your generosity, but I'm not seeking money from you. That's not what it means. So what does Paul seek then? Let me read verse 17 again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So he's not after money, but I seek the fruit. We're going to take that part second. I seek the fruit. This is what Paul is after. He is seeking fruit. He wants them to bear fruit. Now, again, go back to chapter 1 again and look at his prayer in chapter 1 one more time. Look at starting in verse 9. Look at how Paul prays for the Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he prays in verse 11 that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So he has prayed this for them. He is praying this for them, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's what he wants to see in them. He wants them to be bearing fruit. That's what he is after, fruitfulness. So now think back 
to Epaphroditus making this journey. Mark talked about this several weeks ago. Epaphroditus and probably other people made this journey from Philippi to Rome. Remember, Mark said it was 800 miles that they had, to, they had to travel. And I think there was maybe 90 miles over water in this massive journey. Probably took them six weeks to make this journey from Philippi to Rome. Epaphroditus risked his life bringing these gifts to Paul. Now picture Paul, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And then one day Epaphroditus shows up with these gifts, he embraces Paul, I'm sure, and then he tells him that he has made this journey and the Philippian church have brought gifts to the apostle Paul. And then Paul, remember what he does in verse 10, he rejoices in the Lord greatly when he sees Epaphroditus, when he sees those gifts. Why does he rejoice in the Lord greatly? Because Paul sees in those gifts evidence of grace in the lives of the Philippian Christians. He sees that as a sign of spiritual health. He sees their gifts as a sign of fruitfulness, and that causes Paul to rejoice in the Lord greatly because they are bearing fruit. This is what he's prayed for, and now he's seeing it, and he rejoices at their fruitfulness, at this evidence of grace. So a couple application points from this would be, do we rejoice when we see other believers growing in the faith? Do we rejoice when we see evidences of grace on display in other Christians? I remember talking to Jerry Edgar a little over a year ago at the gym after a meal, and we were sort of just celebrating the goodness of God to our church, and I was talking about the conversions we've seen and what a joy it has been to see people come to saving faith, you know, justification happening, what a joy it has been. And then Jerry Edgar said something like this. He said, almost as joyful or just about as joyful has been seeing the sanctification in the lives of our members. That has been tremendously joyful to see people grow. My guess is for all of us as Christians, we rejoice when people come to saving faith, we rejoice when people come from death to life. That causes us great joy. But do we have similar joy when we see people growing in the faith? I hope we have great joy to see people making progress, to see evidence of grace on display. I hope that causes us to rejoice. And number two application would be, if the grace of God is at work in our life, it's going to show up in generosity. It is going to show up in generosity. So let's finish this verse. Let me read the whole thing again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So Paul seeks the fruit that increases to their credit. What is Paul saying here at the end? I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or you could say, I seek the fruit that increases to your account. I seek the fruit that increases to your account. Where is this account located? This account is very likely located in heaven. He is seeking fruit that increases to their account in heaven. You see, Paul is concerned about their eternal retirement. Paul wants them to store up treasure in heaven. That's what he wants from them. He's, he's concerned about their eternal retirement. One commentator said it like this. Their sending of these gifts is a token of heavenly grace in their lives. It's an evidence of grace in their lives, just like we said, but it is also a deposit in the bank of heaven that will multiply at compound interest to their advantage. They meant Paul to be the gainer from their generosity, and so indeed he is. But on the spiritual plane, the permanent gain will be there. So Paul wants them to be storing up treasure in heaven. Jesus wants us to be storing up treasure in heaven. He says famously in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we as Christians, we are expected to store up treasure in heaven. And certainly one of the ways 
by no means the only way, but one of the ways we store up treasure in heaven is by the way we use our money. Alistair Begg, in his sermon on this text, he said that many of you probably have IRA accounts, individual retirement accounts. He said, those are wonderful to have. But he said, I want to talk about a different type of account this morning. I want to talk about an IEA. What's an IEA? An IEA is an individual eternal account. He said, everybody needs an individual eternal account. And he said, what is in your individual eternal account? And when is the last time you made an investment in that account? The safest and surest investment is to faithfully steward our resources for the good of the kingdom. Two quick stories on this. One from a pastor who told this story. Back when he was in seminary, I think he was recently married in seminary. He was working. His wife was working as a nanny. He was going to seminary full time, paying for all of seminary, all the books and everything, and then trying to pay for everything in life. He said it was very difficult for them financially. They were in a very tight situation financially during that season. And one evening, the, the wife or the couple that his wife was nannying for invited them over for dinner. And they had dinner with this couple. And then after dinner, the wife turned to them and asked them how they were doing. And this young seminarian said that they were doing fine. And she sort of Ask him again, no, really, how are you guys doing? And he said, we're doing fine. So she rephrased the question. She said, no, how are you guys doing financially? And he said, something like being a proud seminarian that I was, I lied. And I said, we're doing fine. And he said, she leaned closer to him and she said, no, really, how are you doing financially? And he finally broke and he said, we're not doing that great. It's a little bit tight for us financial. And he said that he's never forgotten what she said next. She rebuked him and she said, don't ever do that again. And I assume she means this on two levels. Number one, don't lie. We as Christians are supposed to love and speak the truth, so don't lie. But she said, don't lie about your financial situation because when you do that, you're robbing my husband and I from storing up treasure in heaven. You're robbing us of storing up treasure in heaven. And this pastor said she was right That's exactly what we were doing. We were robbing them of storing up treasure in heaven. And then this pastor quoted from Jim Elliott, probably the most famous thing that Jim Elliott ever wrote in his journals where he wrote this line, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Second story comes from George Mueller, who I'm sure you know, I've mentioned him many times, who founded these orphanages by prayer, cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. But if you know George Mueller's story, you know that he was a mess before he became a Christian. Absolute mess of a man. Elizabeth Prada recently gave me this little pamphlet on George Mueller, and Elizabeth said she was sort of interesting to see how he was obsessed with money before he became a Christian. And he was obsessed with money. He stole money. He stole from his father. He stole from his friends. He was in charge of the money when his friends and them went on a trip. And he said he, like Judas, used to help himself to some of the money from uh, this collected group. uh, The money was in this collected pot and he was stealing from it. So his his portion was less than everybody else's. He he made up some crazy story about being robbed so his friends would have compassion on him and they believed him and they gave him money. He ended up going to jail for a season. So he was just a a mess of a man and then God powerfully converts Mueller and uh, just moving the way he describes it. He said, at a time when I was as careless about God as ever, God sent his spirit into my heart. That's amazing. The hound of heaven was pursuing George Mueller and overtook George Mueller. He was invited to this little Bible study and just was drawn into this little group of believers. He goes back and hears the gospel, becomes a Christian. And one of the things that happened was Mueller no longer loved money. He began to love to give away money. And he founds these orphanages And he was in charge of this ministry organization that cared for all these orphans. And every year, he would publish this ministry report or financial report of this organization that he oversaw. 
And in this financial report, there would be frequent entries from an anonymous donor over and over and over again. There would be all these entries from an anonymous donor. And this is what the line would say, gifts received from a servant of the Lord Jesus who, constrained by the love of Christ, seeks to lay up treasure in heaven. I love that line. Gifts received from a servant of the Lord Jesus, constrained by the love of Christ, seeking to store up treasure in heaven. Over and over and over, this anonymous donor is giving. Well, you can probably guess who this anonymous donor was. It was George Mueller himself was the anonymous donor who was giving and giving and giving. And in this little book that my wife and I were reading, it had a little chart and it showed what George Mueller gave away in about a 49-year period in his life. Let me give you some of those numbers. Between 1836 and 1846, he gave away 37.6% of his money. Between 1846 and 1855, he gave away 53.2%. Between 1856 and 1865, he gave away 77.3% of his money. Between 1866 and 1885, he gave away over 85% of his money. And I remember seeing that and thinking, wow. How much treasure in heaven does George Mueller have? Here was a man who was making regular investments in his individual eternal account. Point number two, God's perspective of the Philippians' generosity. Verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is amazing. God's perspective. How does God view the Philippians' generosity? Middle of verse 18, he views it as a fragrant offering. Their gifts smell good to God. He views them as a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. God is pleased by the Philippians' generosity. That's amazing. One pastor said, when Christians are generous, God is pleased. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. My dad has said that God doesn't so much want our money, he wants our heart. He wants us to be giving cheerfully and joyfully, and this perspective should transform the way we give. It should go from duty to delight. It should go from, oh, I have to give, no, to I get to give. We get to give. We get to worship and we get to please God when we give cheerfully in this way. Of course, we are giving as a response, again, to God's incredible grace that He has shown us. We give because Jesus is a giver. Jesus gave His life for us, and now in response, we give joyfully, we give worshipfully, we give cheerfully. Uh, A quick story on this. Many of you know that my mom grew up in Africa as a missionary kid. Uh, My grandparents were missionaries there in the Congo, sort of in the middle of Africa for about 20 years until it was too dangerous for them to stay there. But my mom graduated high school there. And if you know my mom, she has a heart for the African people. She has a deep love for the African people, especially the Congolese people. And she got to go back uh, several years ago with other missionary kids, and she brought Bibles and other gifts, and they got to go around in the Congo. They flew all these these small planes and were landing in remote areas in Africa, and they'd be swarmed by all these African people would come and swarm the plane. There's lots of amazing pictures from that trip, but they also got to go to church services during that trip. And I remember one church service in particular was unique. When it came time for the giving, they did something very unique at this church. All the women lined up on one side of the sanctuary. All the men lined up on the other side of the sanctuary, and they formed two dance lines. They began to dance, and they began to sing. And one by one, they would take their offering to the front. One woman and then one man down. Just this beautiful picture in their giving. And uh, I remember 
it was not hard to spot my mom in the lineup of women. Uh, she sort of stood out. Number one, she was one of the few white people in the line, but number two, she's not known for her dancing ability. So she sort of danced quickly down, gave, and, and got out of the way. But I remember I talked to Manuel Fierro about that story, and he absolutely loved that story. I think we were just talking about different cultures and different churches, and Manuel loved this story. Why did he love this story? Well, you see, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what we should be internally when we give. We should be giving joyfully and cheerfully and worshipfully, and when we give in this way, God is pleased by our giving. Point number three, an incredible promise of God's provision, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What a promise this is. One commentator said the Philippians supplied Paul's needs sufficiently, and now Paul assures them that God will supply all their needs according to his infinite resources. Some things we need to take note about this promise is number one, it's a particular promise, it is something personal and individual that comes only through the channel of Christ Jesus. Notice it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So if you've never come to the Lord Jesus with repentance and faith, then the promises of God's care in the Bible are not for you. But the offer to come to Jesus is for you. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if you turn from sin and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you'll be forgiven and have new life in Christ. And then the promises of God's care will be for you. For everyone who is in Christ, then these promises are for us. Let me read this one more time. Verse 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, my God will supply every luxury of yours. He doesn't say God's going to supply every want of ours. He says God's going to supply every need. And what we need and what we think we need may not be the same thing. But he is promising to care for us and to provide for us. And notice the source of these, this, this supply. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This is something that's never going to run out, says one pastor. The supplies come from the storehouse of his riches and glory because the earth and the world are his and all that they contain. Because his supplies are as infinite as his glory, we may count on his provision. It will never run out. So how should we respond to an incredible promise like this? Well, number one, we should marvel at this extraordinary promise. We should treasure this promise. One commentator said this. He said, the words are intended to encourage the community with the assurance that God can and does provide all that believers need to enjoy true contentment. He brings contentment back in. God's going to give us everything we need to enjoy true, genuine contentment. Number two, a pastor says, if we trust this promise, it will be very hard for anxiety to survive. God's riches and glory are inexhaustible. He really means for us not to worry about our future. So when we treasure this promise, anxiety and worry is going to flee away if we treasure this promise. Quick story on this comes from uh, a couple, Nancy DeMose, some of you may know as an author, and she hosts a radio program. She was single for much of her life, and then she got married later in life to a man named Robert Wagelmuth. They've been married for maybe about four years. And this year has been a tough year for Robert. He has had, uh, had cancer early on in the year, and he had a couple surgeries to get rid of the cancer. And then he was recovering from that, those surgeries, and then he began to feel very weak, and he had to go back in for more tests. 
uh, biopsy, and then they discovered that his bone marrow was not making enough red blood cells. So he was going to have to get lots of blood transfusions while they waited to hear what was wrong with him. And here's how Nancy worded it. She said, Robert has had seven blood transfusions in the last 17 days while trying to get a diagnosis for profound anemia. We thank the Lord each time for the one who gave that blood and for the one who gave his blood that we might live forever. They had more and more tests, and it looked like the cancer had returned, which that's exactly what happened. He was just having chemo this past week. But when they got this initial news that looked like the cancer had returned, I want you to hear their response. And listen, if you hear any worry or any anxiety, or if you hear anything about the promises of God, she says, we held each other and lifted our hearts up to the Lord, whose wisdom and goodness and love we have learned to trust. With each step in this uncharted territory, we are counseling our hearts with the truth and clinging tenaciously to the promises of God's word and to the one who made those promises. And she quotes from a hymn, trusting in our Father's wise bestowment. We've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. I don't hear any worry or anxiety. I hear trust in the promises of God and trust in the one who made those promises. Elizabeth Elliot once said, God has promised to supply all our needs. What we don't have now we don't need now. John Newton said very similarly, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Bunches of theology packed in a couple of sentences there. How does Paul respond to this promise? Verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul responds by bursting into a doxology of praise and worship. Paul is chained to a Roman soldier and yet his heart is soaring in praise and worship as he thinks on this promise. When one thinks on the riches of God lavished on us in Christ Jesus, what else is there to do but to praise and worship? So let's soak in the promises of God to fight fear and anxiety, but let's soak in the promises of God to stir our affections up to praise and worship God. Let's look now briefly at the final greetings of chapter 4, verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I love verse 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Mark talked about this verse, I think, previously. One pastor said, it is thrilling to think that already the gospel had penetrated the machinery of government there. Another pastor said, whoa, where did that come from? Could it be some of the guards had come to faith in Christ? Could it be some of Caesar's own family, a sister, an uncle, a niece, a nephew come to faith in Christ? Who would have ever thought it? And so church history has again and again shown surprising conversions of people you would have least expected. So this should encourage us to continue to not lose hope with loved ones and friends and co-workers and family members that still don't know the Savior. This should encourage us to keep praying for them that they would come to faith in Christ. This should encourage us to continue to get the gospel to people who do not know the Savior because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And then Paul ends the letter, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If you look back at chapter 1, one more time, he begins with grace in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he ends with grace, verse 23 of chapter 4. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So in other words, the whole Christian journey in receiving and giving and caring and in sharing is grace from start to finish. So how does Paul view their generosity? He rejoices 
in the Lord greatly at their generosity. He views it as a kindness shown to him. He views it as sharing in his trouble. He views it as them entering into a gospel partnership with them. And he reminds them that he's not seeking the gift. He's after fruit. That's what he wants. He wants them to be bearing fruit. And when he sees them bearing fruit, he rejoices in the Lord greatly. And he seeks the fruit that increases to their credit. He wants them to be storing up treasure in heaven. How does God respond? He views it as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Oh, we would have this perspective on our giving. It would transform the way we give. And then that incredible promise of God's provision. God's going to supply every need of ours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Well, originally I was going to end this and say, I hope we're going to be a little bit more like the Philippians in our generosity. But I was talking to Jerry Edgar last night, and he said, if you can, try to encourage our church. And so I'm going to try to encourage you guys right here. Uh, this church has been amazing in its generosity from the beginning uh, of our inception of this church. People thought we were going to struggle financially, just a small little church, and yet we have not struggled financially one bit. God has exceeded all of our imaginations with the way that people have supported this church. So you guys have given generously and sacrificially since this church began. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the way you have given. So I would just say, let's continue to do so more and more. Let's continue to give cheerfully and joyfully. And let's try to be maybe like George Mueller, who was a servant of God, constrained by the love of Christ, seeking to store up treasure in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, thank you once again for this wonderful letter, this wonderful little book of Philippians. It is rich with wonderful truth. Thank you for this wonderful little church, the Philippian church. Uh, that so cared for Paul and, that, and Paul had such deep love for this church. Thank you for their example and their wonderful generosity that they had for the Apostle Paul. Father, I, I am thankful for the generosity of our church, the way that the, the members of this church have been generous and I believe cheerful in their giving since the inception of this church. And I pray that we would just continue to do so more and more, that we would be cheerful in our giving, that we would see that our giving actually pleases you when we give cheerfully. Help us to remember those brothers and sisters in Christ in Africa who dance down with their offerings to give joyfully. And I pray that we would give in, that, in a similar way internally when we give. And help us to remember that Jesus wants us to store up treasure in heaven. And when we give cheerfully and joyfully, we're making a deposit into the account of heaven that's going to increase greatly. And Father, we give as a response to your grace in sending your Son to save us from our sins. Help us to always remember that as the foundation of our giving is the grace of God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.